quick word about mothers. It is Mother Day. Mother's Day, after all. I couldn't just not say anything. It won't take long. But I found I find it interesting when you look in the book of Genesis, the very beginning, in the creation of all things, Adam was created, but yet there was not a not one like him. And then God gave Adam Eve as a wife. But if you'll notice, for the first little while, it was not Adam and Eve. It was Adam and woman. (laughs) Eve did not get a name for a little while. For the first little while, she didn't have a name. She was simply the woman. That was the name or the designation, perhaps, that Adam gave her when God took a rib out of his chest, formed formed this helper meat for him from the rib, and Adam said, Adam called her woman, for she came out of man. And that was her, her association, forever to be associated as the one who came out of man. But time goes on. Adam and Eve sin, and God declares that the woman, up until now, even God is referring to her as the woman, the woman, the woman, that she will bear children, and it will be painful. But once God declares that the woman will bear children, Adam declares that her name is now Eve, for she is the mother of all living But it wasn't until she became a mother that she received her name. She received a designation when she came to life. But motherhood is worthy of a name. Now this is not to say that those who do not have children are not worthy of a name. But I just want to point out in the Bible, motherhood is worthy of a name and an identity. Sometimes it's overwhelming and you wish you could just escape from it. too much, too hard. But biblically, motherhood is worthy of a name. Now, prophetically speaking, this name of Eve is prophetic of the one who would come to be born of a woman to redeem mankind from the sin of Adam's race. Being the mother of all life, Jesus bringing us life from death. And it was the care and the love and the, the nurturing of a of a mother that brought this about. So I want to encourage you mothers, motherhood is worthy of a name. Eve received her name when she became a mother. And it is not something that is to be overlooked for those of us, for those of you who are mothers. You're not overlooked by God. You're loved and adored because you're mothers. And you are given blessing because you're mothers. So please rejoice in your motherhood that God has given you. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We come to a story here. Last week we talked about what it means 
that Jesus and his disciples did not fast together, not like John's, not, the, not, not like the disciples of John the Baptist, and what it meant to not put new wine into old wineskins or put a new patch into an old garment. The old is gone, the new has come. In Christ, we look to Jesus now. We don't look to the law of Moses for our sanctification and our redemption. We look to Jesus for all of this, for all, of, for all good that comes from God. We look to Jesus. Today, we're going to see Jesus doing good, in a sense. We're going to see its implications. I'm going to read this story real quickly. And actually, this story that we're about to read, you can find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew's account is much shorter and does not include all the details that Mark and Luke do. I'm going to read this here. And Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 says, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if, only, if, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that your spirit will do his work in magnifying Christ among us, that we will see him as Lord, that we will see him and not us, that we will, though we will see the faith of these people in this story, that we will see the object of their faith far bigger, who is Jesus. And Lord, as I preach, Lord, I pray that you will give me clarity and that you will give me the, the ability to communicate well. I pray for the hearers here that their hearts would be open and that the Spirit would be upon them to understand the Word and to, and to take it, to hide it in their hearts, to make it part of who they are, to saint, as you sanctify them by your great work. Lord, let us now just see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. And as I mentioned here, Matthew's account here parallels the same, the same story recorded in, in Mark chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. Uh, Matthew's version is much shorter. And basically, his version captures a basic overview of the details with an apparent focus on the simple faith of the people involved. He doesn't get into a whole lot of other details that can show us some other things. He is focusing on the faith of the people involved. So therefore, he arranges the story in such a way to capitalize on the faith of the people. Perhaps, I don't know this for sure, I'm not in the mind of Matthew, but perhaps this is simply because this is the first miracle, or the first set of miracles that Matthew himself actually saw as a disciple. 
Remember, so he, he taught a sermon, a short little sermon just a bit ago. In fact, he was in the middle of preaching this when this ruler came up to him. As it says in verse 18, while he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came. And right before he was teaching this, he called Matthew to be a disciple. So this is really the first thing that Matthew himself had seen with his own eyes. So perhaps that's the reason why he is focusing on Jesus here. The faith of the people in, that they had in Jesus. And he's not worried about all the other details because he just remembers this story with such fondness. And all he, really, all he could really see was Jesus because Jesus had just mercifully and graciously called the, the, the reject Matthew to be his disciple. Perhaps that's why. I don't know exactly, but perhaps that's why. And for an example of the shortness of the account, I mean, just in verse 18, let me just read verse 18. While he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she shall live. Now in Luke chapter 8, if you will look at that just to see a parallel about how they record these things differently, Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 41, it says, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So we see in Luke's account, we, even from the beginning, we see a lot more detail. Matthew he doesn't say his name was Jairus. He doesn't say that he was the ruler of the synagogue. He says he was a ruler. He doesn't give the, the uh, age of the daughter. He says that this ruler came to him and knelt before him, whereas Luke includes that he didn't just kneel before him, but he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him. So Luke's account gives far more detail than Matthew's account, just from the very introduction of the passage. Now, this doesn't make Matthew's account wrong and Luke's right. No, there's reasons, and we, talk, and we don't need to talk all day about the reasons why they're different. But suffice it to say that Matthew had a different focus than Mark or Luke. He, perhaps it's because he didn't want to distract us with the emotional drama and the identity of Jairus. He just wanted to make sure that we saw faith. That we saw the people's faith. And we're going to run through this passage. We've read Matthew's account, but we're going to actually stay in Luke for a while. And we're going to see Luke's account so that you and I, we weren't there. Matthew was there, but we weren't there. And it would make, perhaps it would be helpful for us to see some more of these details. Um, so we're going to run through the majority of this from Luke's perspective so that we can get a sense of the details. And while we talk about this faith, as we lead up to the faith of these people and the type of faith that they had. Because we're going to talk about faith in a slightly different way as we have in the past. We've talked a lot about faith and healings and miracles. Jesus has already done some miracles and some healings. Well, there's another story about miracles and healings. You're just going to be, just pull out a sermon from a few weeks ago and preach that sermon with different names. <laughs> Well, it is a little bit different. We're going to see how it's a little bit different and why this is recorded in particular, and it's not just redundant. Jesus is a healer. Great. 
but he's not redundant. There's a purpose here. So look at Matthew chapter 8. Or not Matthew, sorry, Luke (laughs) chapter 8, starting in verse 40. He says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. Now really, there aren't that many situations in the Bible where you see religious rulers humbling themselves before Jesus. A couple of situations where there is. Most of the time, the religious rulers are coming against Jesus. But here we see Jairus, a ruler of a synagogue. Now don't get this confused with a a temple priest or a a ruler of the temple or a high priest. Synagogue was a local place where people could come in that community and come and hear the word of God read aloud. They could come and ask questions. These people, Jairus was trained. Perhaps He was probably a priest. He was trained in the word. He knew what he was talking about. Um, and But a, a synagogue was not a place where you would bring sacrifices and offerings and things like that. A synagogue was typically a place where the people could come and learn. Kind of like a, a schooling house for those who wanted to learn from scripture from a religious teacher, ruler of some sort. Not a place of sacrifice like that was the temple. This was a place to, of learning. And Jairus was the head guy at the synagogue. At Capernaum, Capernaum had a synagogue that people would come from, from the surrounding villages, and they would come to the synagogue in Capernaum to hear the word of God, read aloud, taught. They could come and ask questions. Other people could come and participate in some way. Jairus was the head of this synagogue. Now, he had a daughter who was 12 age, and his dilemma here was that this 12-year-old daughter was his only daughter, and she was dying. Matthew's account says that by the time he arrived there, she was already dead. Simply put, Matthew, again, was not recording all the details because he's trying to have a focus. He's not trying to lay out the whole progression here. He simply told us the problem. His daughter died. He had a problem with this. He came to Jesus for help. Luke is kind of fleshing this out a little bit more, showing us that by the time Jairus arrives to Jesus, he is desperate Because his daughter is about to die. He knows she's about to die. And without help, he is going to lose her. This is a great dilemma. He's backed into a corner. He has nowhere else to go. It's doubtless that up to this point, perhaps he has sought out help from physicians and doctors. Perhaps it's not recorded whether he did or not. All we know now, though, is... She's at the point where nobody else can help her. Because without Jesus and a miracle, he knows she's going to die. That's where he's at. Desperation. Backed into a corner. No way out. Except for a miracle. And this is the dilemma of Jairus. And he's not going to another position. He knows that they're not going to be able to do what needs to be done. Perhaps because he's already tried them and they failed. 
or perhaps because he just knows what his daughter is suffering from and he knows that there is no um, healing from a physician to be had. There's no medicine for her. There's nothing any, he knows that there's nothing that anybody else can do. Jesus and a, a miracle from God is the only hope. So it says here that in verse, at the end of verse 42, and Jesus went, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. So he's being followed by this huge crowd of people. People everywhere have been hearing about the things that Jesus has been doing, and they want to hopefully catch a glimpse of what Jesus is about to do next. Hey, Jesus is going to heal somebody. Come on, let's go watch. Let's go see what's going to happen. Let's go see another spectacle put on by this prophet or this whatever greatly blessed rabbi, whoever they might have thought that he was. All they knew is something amazing was about to happen and everybody wanted to see it. So the people were pressing around him, following him, going with him. In verse 43, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So here we have, and you know, sometimes in the past I've wondered, why in the world are these two stories not kind of dealt with separately? I mean, the two different people, two different problems. They don't really, I mean, sure it's part of the same sequence, but um, typically when a, an author is writing something to make a point, he kind of segments to the details to make a point with each segment. But here, both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this, these stories are always together. And not just because of the sequential chronology of the events for a purpose, because their problems are related. Now, this woman probably has never met Jairus. She has a particular problem that caused her to ostracize herself from the greater society. According to the law, there, she said, it says that she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years and she had spent all of her living on physicians, but she could not be healed by anyone. Now, this discharge of blood, according to the law, caused her to have to kind of separate herself from the people. She couldn't worship. She couldn't go and worship with people. She had to be apart from society until the issue of blood stopped. Then she went through a ritual of cleansing for seven days, and then she could go and worship with people. Then she could really integrate back into society until, you know, the, the next time she had this issue of blood. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details about that, but I think you know where that's going. Um, but she has had an ongoing problem for 12 straight years. And for 12 straight years, she really could not be seen in public. She's been working with doctors for 12 years. And she said and it says she spent everything that she had trying to be healed by these physicians. There was nothing else that she could do. Even if she wanted to go to another doctor, she had no money anymore. She couldn't. She was backed into a corner. And I want you to notice, there's a number. Do you believe, do you believe in coincidence? Yes? <laughs> I believe that things coincide for a reason. <laughs> it 
So in a way, coincidence is real, but there's always intent for coinciding details. She has been dealing with this for 12 years. Jairus' daughter is approaching 12 years of age. I mean, just think about that for a second. 12 years ago, when this woman started having this issue of blood, the daughter of Jairus was born. And back then, do you think God had a plan that 12 years from that time, Jesus would be glorified? Jesus would be magnified in the sight of the people. And these people were prepared together, even though they were from completely different walks of life. They had no relationship, most likely. They didn't know each other. Their problems are completely different. And while this woman with the discharge of blood was having her problem, Jairus' daughter probably was just growing up like a normal child. Nothing significant really going on. But the will of God from 12 years from this day was always that these two would come together in the same story to give honor to Jesus Christ. Remember, there was a blind man. And the disciples said, why was this man born blind? Is it because of somebody's sin? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Not because of sin, but so that the Lord might be glorified. So the glory of God might be seen in him. God has a purpose in all that he does. And here, Luke is making it very clear by pointing out the numerical details that 12 years ago, God had a plan. And he's carrying it out on this day where Jairus' daughter and this woman are going to see the resolution of their problem to the glory of Christ. Have you ever seen that in your life? Where all these insignificant details seem to all come together to produce something wonderful to the glory of God. Things, things that just come together all of a sudden that really had nothing to do with anything. They all just come together and, and you can see God's hand in it. Have you ever seen that in your life? You know, for, we've seen situations where we are running, you know, perhaps we've, there are situations, okay, let's talk about financial situations where we're running into a financial situation Nobody knows about it because we don't really like to broadcast those things. And we have a need. And then all of a sudden we get a check in the mail that meets that need from somebody who had no idea what we were going through. But they decided on that day that they were going to go and send us something. And on that day, we had a need. <laughs> we didn't have the need weeks ago. We had the need that day. The person could have sent that gift weeks ago and we didn't have the need and we would have thought nothing of it. We would have been thankful for them trying to help us out. But on the day we had a need, that person who had no idea about the need helps us with that need. Do you think that that is random coincidence? Or do you think that Jesus is just showing up? Have you ever seen that in your life? Well, this is happening today in this passage with Jairus' daughter from one walk of life and this woman with a discharge of blood from another walk of life with two completely different problems, yet we see Christ glorified the same way from the both of them. And one of the great similarities that we can see here 
is that both of these situations had no other options. Jairus knew his daughter was going to die unless there was a miracle. There was nothing he could do. There was nothing anybody could do. He was backed into a corner. This woman with a discharge of blood, she's been trying for 12 years to get help. She's out of options now. She's out of money. She's out of faith in the doctors. She's also out of options because there's nobody else who can help. Both of these people are out of options. And who do they turn to? Jesus. They have nowhere else to go. Everybody else has failed them. The woman's out of money. The girl is out of options. And there's desperation because there is nothing else that they can do. And it says that this woman comes to Jesus in verse 44. She came up behind him and touched him, touched the fringe of his garments. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. So we see her, she's the first one who is healed by Jesus. Her faith, her desperation has, told, has led her to this. Well, one, she's not really supposed to be in the throng because of her situation. But she knows that there's nothing else she can do. Yeah, there's a crowd there. She shouldn't be seen in public. She shouldn't be there. But she's desperate. She's going to do whatever it takes because she needs to get to Jesus. He's there. She prefers that she could be able to find him on his own, perhaps, to be able to avoid the crowd. But that's not an option. Again, she's out of options. She's got to get to Jesus, so she's going to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. So she makes her way through the crowd, trying to be as inconspicuous as she can, thinking, if I could only touch the fringe of her garment... Ah, then, then there's hope in Jesus. In, not even just in Jesus, but just the clothes of Jesus. <laughs> if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Her faith was so much in Jesus that she didn't even think that she needed him to do some sort of ritual over her, anoint her, or receive a sacrifice or anything like that. She just has so much faith and desperation in Jesus that all she needs to do is go and just touch him. So she does. And Jesus says, who was it that touched me? Everybody around him is denying it. And Peter says, master, the crowd surrounds you and they're oppressing around you. Jesus, everybody's touching you. Everybody's nudging you. Everybody's walking around you. Why are you saying who touched me? There's lots of people touching you. <laughs> What are you talking about, Jesus? And then Jesus replied to Peter, and he said in verse 46, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Think about that for a second. Lots of people are touching Jesus, but nothing is happening. This woman came and touched Jesus. Why wasn't it the same as when everybody else was touching Jesus? Nudging him, walking alongside of him because of her faith because she actually was desperate for him she actually he was her last hope 
And I think that there's a lot of people in this world today who are around Jesus. They're going around with Jesus. They're nudging him. They're, kind of, they're following him where, in a way where he's going. They're going to church. They're getting involved in different things. They're walking with Jesus. But no power from on high is going out among them. Because there's still no faith. They want to see what Jesus is going to do. They're going to, they want to see where Jesus is going and where they might lead him. But there's not really faith from these people who are supposedly following Jesus. See, these people were following Jesus. Does that mean they were all his disciples and that they were all saved and converted and redeemed and receiving blessings from God? Is that what that meant? Because they were going where Jesus was going. They wanted to go see what he was going to do. They believed he was going to do something amazing for Jairus' daughter. But yet no power is going out from Jesus into these other people who are touching him. Just this one woman who had desperate faith in Jesus, who had a desperate need that nobody else could help them with her with. Power from Christ went out to her because she actually needed him. Many of us want to be around Jesus' stuff and churchy stuff, but we don't really feel like we need him. We're desperate for him. Some people are the throng that are still on the way to on the broad path. Some of us are the one on the narrow path. A lot of people think highly of Jesus. Very few people are desperate for him who really see that he is their last hope. If you want to look at Ephesians chapter 2 for me, with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Did you know that at one point we were without hope? We all talk about hope. Everybody's got hope. Everybody's got potential. Everybody, not according to scriptures, according to scriptures, we all have no hope. No hope. That doesn't sound very encouraging. Because really, if you have no hope, then there's nothing that can be done. But that's exactly where we need to get if we are to be converted. If we are going to be truly desperate for Jesus and put our faith wholly and solely in Jesus, we have to recognize our hopelessness without him. We need to be like this girl, or this, this girl's father, Jairus, who had no hope in anybody else. Absolutely nothing. We need to be like this woman who has absolutely no hope. She's tried. She's tried and she's tried and she's tried for over a decade to get help, but nothing can help. There is no hope. 
Why do you think so many, I mean, this is coming from somebody who has counseled tons and tons of drug addicts. Why do you think that so many addicts keep returning, returning? They go get help, but they keep returning. They keep returning. They keep returning. It is very rare to find a drug addict who does not return at some point to their addiction. Because they can talk about hitting rock bottom, but still, there is still the hope that the counseling is going to help them. There's still hope that the doctors will help them, that the pills will help them, that family will help them, that a change of scenery will help them. There is not the utter soul desperation for Jesus. Because everybody keeps telling them, take these pills, talk to this counselor, go do this, go do that. And the, the focus is distracted from the desperation we ought to have in Jesus Christ. Not to say that these other things cannot be helpful. I'm not telling you that if you're on depression medication that you should stop. That's not my place, and I'm not telling you that. There are some things that we should go to the doctor for. But the point here is not necessarily advice on how to get healed from an affliction as much as it is a story about faith in Christ. This Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not recording this so that we could get medical advice. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are recording this so that we can understand our hopelessness, so that we can associate with these people and see that we have the same desperation for Christ that these people did and that we can learn from them. And that if you are going to be redeemed you have to be desperate for him, backed into a corner, hit rock bottom, understanding that nothing you do is going to help you survive. Nothing you do is going to help you look good in God's sight. Nothing you do is going to come to your aid when you stand before the judge of all the earth who will judge injustice and righteousness. Nothing you do is going to advocate for you only Jesus. Only Jesus. You have to come to the point of desperation where you know that it doesn't matter what kind of disciplines you have set in your life. It doesn't matter what sins you have rejected and what good things you have accepted. Those things will not come to your aid when you stand before the Father. Only Jesus will come to your aid. Only Him. And this is what we need to understand. If anything else... Perhaps there are implications for life here. Usually, just like the faith of Abraham where his faith had faith in God's work in life and therefore in eternity. So there are implications in every physical story where faith is expressed in physical things and, then, and also applied to eternal things. But we must see here that Jesus must be our one Outlook on life, our soul desperation. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope 
and without God in this world. Have you been there? Do you recognize that you have been without God and without hope? That is supposed to cause desperation and hunger. But now in Christ Jesus, in verse 13, you who are once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. We are not brought near because we clean ourselves up and get fixed by other sources. We are brought near because we have turned our backs on all those other things that could help you and we have fixed our eye on Jesus, fixed our eye on the Son of God. James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 5, again we're going to see our soul desperation. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We've been talking about this in Sunday school, and it was a great lesson this morning. Great conversation. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. Without reproach. God doesn't care who you are. If you'll come to God in desperation, now this isn't necessarily talking about salvation as much as it is our need for him, for wisdom, for in the midst of trials and tribulations, but we see that the truth for salvation is also applying itself to life. But let's learn about faith here in this passage. And it will be given him. But in verse 6, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is, double mind, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Double-minded man. As teachers, some of you have been teachers. How many times have you told your students, give me your undivided attention? What were you saying when you were saying that? If you want to learn something, you need to only pay attention to me. Put your phones away. Put your comic books away. Stop reading out of the textbook, even though that could also be helpful. I am telling you something that you need to know. I am the source of your knowledge. If you want to pass the quiz, if you want to pass the test, you need to hear what I am saying. Don't be passing notes. Don't talk to your neighbor. Pay attention to me. And this is what James is telling us. If, this is, James is telling us what faith is supposed to look like. Undivided attention to Jesus. Even when you are utilizing other parts of the world, it's not because you think your hope is in them. It's because your hope is in Christ and perhaps he will use those things. But in everything, the hope is in Christ. Christ, many times, this is one of the first things I would tell my, my counselees, is that when you are coming to Christ, you are not just adding Christ as one more book on the bookshelf. Shelf. Here's Jesus. Here's medication. Here's, you know, my, my, uh, my counselor. Here is my, my own personal disciplines. Um, you know, Jesus is just one of those books. Well, this one isn't really suiting me today, so I'm going to open this one up over here and see what it has to offer me. Oh, well, I'm not feeling that today. You know what? It's Sunday, so I'm going to open the Jesus book. 
and I'm going to see Jesus today. And a lot of us treat Jesus like that, where he's just one of the options that we can choose from. A good option, a noble option, sounds nice and religious and spiritual. No, the point is, is that Jesus is this whole, Jesus is everything. There are other things in here that Jesus uses, but it's all inside of Jesus. Jesus is the one thing that we must be in pursuit of as we're living out life. I mean, after all, we don't quit our job just because we have faith that Jesus will make everything work out. No, Jesus uses our jobs. Paul told people, let the thief who steal, stole steal no more, but let him work with his own hands so that he can provide for the needs of others. Jesus uses things that we do, but only as we are coming to him daily in faith with everything that we need, starting with our salvation. Jesus is just not one option to make our life better, to fix everything. No, he is our sole desperation for everything. And we must come to him. Otherwise, he says, let no person think that he's going to receive anything from the Lord because he is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Jesus needs your undivided attention. Undivided. He is not just another one of your hobbies. He is not just one of the several options. He is the option, the thing, the, the, the desperate pursuit of your life. That's why Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Because as you are desperately following after Christ, all the other things do receive the blessing of God and the interaction of God. Now look back in Luke, and we will finish up this story here. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. We've started there. Now we're going we're gonna to look here and see. Verse 47, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, okay, so Jesus was asking, who touched me? She came trembling, falling down before him and declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. She is coming, she is coming out with her problem, with what she's been doing. I know I shouldn't be here, but I needed to come and touch Jesus. And then she also talked about how, and how she had been immediately healed. I didn't do it right, people. I have a problem. I'm not perfect. I have a huge problem. I'm desperately in need. And guess what? Jesus healed me. Jesus healed me. How many of you are willing to talk like that amongst your peers? I am a screw-up. I am messed up. I have all sorts of problems. I have needs. I am dirty. I am filthy. I have problems. And Jesus healed me. Jesus is my healer. Jesus is my redeemer. Jesus is my savior. I know who I've been, but I also know who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Are we willing to talk like that to people? Or are we too afraid that people will think less of us because of all the bad things about us that we might reveal? Well, that's the whole point, isn't it? Just like John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must increase. I must be willing to suffer shame and reproach so that Christ could be glorified. Who cares about what people think of me as long as Jesus is glorified and magnified and I get to lift him up in faith? 
And then he goes on and says, in verse 48, And Jesus, he, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in peace. Don't worry about it. These people, what they think about you, no. Set that aside. Go in peace. I'm not, in, I'm not mad at you. In fact, I'm healing you because of your faith in me. And then at verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be made well. He's encouraging Jairus. He says, Don't give up hope. You know, she was sick before, and there was more hope that she could be healed because I'm a healer. I've healed people of their sicknesses and their diseases. At this point, I've never raised somebody from the dead yet. So perhaps upon hearing that his daughter was dead, Jairus was about to lose hope that Jesus could do anything about it. Jesus is reminding him, do not fear, only believe. The faith, the size of a grain of a mustard seed, can move mountains, can do things that are unimaginable to you. Believe in me. Don't lose hope. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. And he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And remember, and see, look at that. They knew she was dead. It was clear. Her heartbeat had stopped. She was not breathing. The people knew she was dead. They had knowledge, but they did not have wisdom. They could see things with their eyes. People don't come back to, the, to, come back to life from the dead. That's reasonable. Don't you think that's reasonable? People just do not come back to life from the dead. When was the last time you saw it? So it's reasonable why most of, why most of these people would have had reservations. And they were laughing at him. But it's because they had lost faith. They had lost hope that Jesus could do the impossible. They laughed at him knowing that she was dead. You cannot get, let your knowledge get in the way of Christ's power. Nobody is beyond hope. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. In another passage, it's recorded the words, Talitha kumi, in Aramaic. Child, arise. And her spirit returned, which proves that she was dead because her spirit was gone, had departed. Her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that someone should be, something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. And he charged them to tell no one what had happened. But Matthew tells us that the report of this went throughout the whole land. <laughs> you really think that people were going to not tell other people that somebody had just been brought to life from the dead. And to close, because I'm past time, and I apologize for that. In my defense, there's no lunch or afternoon service, so <laughs> I'm just... But anyway... Jesus does the impossible. What is the impossible? Saving you. That's only impossible if you're truly without hope. If you have hope, then it's not impossible. Christ redeeming you from the curse of Adam is impossible. And he did it. We must recognize our utter hopelessness in our desperation for the work and the miracle of Jesus to cleanse us from our sins, to enter us into the righteousness of God 
to transfer our unrighteousness to him on the cross and his righteousness to us, that's not possible. I am still a screw up. I still fail. I'm not like Jesus in 100% perfection. That's not possible. But Jesus did it. And now God looks at you and sees Jesus. Sees that you're perfect. Jesus, your advocate, comes alongside of you and says, I know they didn't earn anything on their own. Because they were hopeless. But they came to me in their hopelessness. In their desperation. And they asked for grace. And mercy. And forgiveness. We must learn from these. From Jairus, from this woman, we must see how utterly desperate we are, how backed into a corner we are, how rock bottom we are, whether we want to feel that or not, because that's not fun to feel. If you've ever hit rock bottom, you know that that is not a happy place. But that is where the wellsprings of joy can flow out from. That is, whoever has been forgiven much, Loves much. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Are you the throng who saw no power of God? Or are you the one who comes to Jesus in desperate faith? Who receives the miracle of God? Because you saw your deep, great need. You've been forgiven much. You have known who you were without Jesus. And you were desperate. And you know that you have been forgiven much And that it was a miracle at all that God has even looked upon you with grace and with favor. Or have you been forgiven little? You know what, I was was always kind of okay. You know, Jesus is, Jesus, you know, I appreciate his work. But you've never been desperate. Who are you? The throng? The one who has been forgiven little or nothing really at all? And you're just kind of adding Jesus to the shelf of of resources that you can pick and choose from? Or are you the one desperate for him? Knowing that you have no hope outside of your faith in Jesus Christ. Outside of the grace of God. Outside of the, the unmerited favor of God through Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see your grace. Help us to see our great need for your unmerited favor. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves, to not put affection on any other thing in the world outside of our faith in Jesus Christ. And let everything that falls under the umbrella of our faith in Jesus Christ be gloriously transformed into that which takes your kingdom and causes it to flourish throughout this world. I pray that you would heal those who need healing, but only according to the faith of Jesus, that Jesus might be magnified and glorified. And that we may not waste our prayers upon the lusts and the desires for comforts so that we can just live out our lives the way we want to live it out. But Lord, may we in our desperate pursuit of Christ seek him. For we need your grace. Remind us of our great need on every single day. And let our failures turn into our servants for they send us to the, to the throne of God in Jesus Christ. In his name.